Gospel reading today is from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. And once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. So our sermons, ooh, loud, are online. And sometimes it's, uh, it's just a few. It's uh, my mom and some person from the Netherlands. I'm not sure, but we do have a friend in the Netherlands. I don't know who it is, but they are very faithful at listening. So whoever you are, we're very glad that you uh, have connected with InTown Church. Uh, and then sometimes there's uh, a whole series. There's one in particular that about 40 to 50 people from Japan listened every Sunday and then never again. So I'm not sure what it was about that particular series. Uh, we usually have, Scott's right, more around 30 that listen to a sermon. But uh, when it's controversial, if we touch on a topic that is a hot topic, it'll bump up to 300, 400 people. And that had me thinking about the fact that, or at least my opinion, is that the, what is controversial we consider the wrong thing as controversial. We consider a sermon about how women should be elevated to all levels of service and be able to be ordained to office and that sort of thing to be controversial. And people are highly interested in that, and they want to listen, some to be confirmed, some to probably debate it or debate me in their heads. But what about just the term gospel? What about what Mark is proclaiming to us? This term, gospel, should be highly controversial, probably the most controversial thing about the Bible, and yet we just sort of read past it, and it just, we filter it through whatever sort of way that we think about, whether we grew up in the church and perhaps we think about it as Jesus' message of salvation, which is just vague enough to be true, or it's the good news that sinners can be forgiven, which is true but incomplete, 
Or maybe if you didn't grow grow up in the church, if you're not a Christian, you're here this morning, maybe it's just the way that we colloquially talk about something being particularly true in a given area. Well, that's just the gospel truth. Well, if you look up a term in a dictionary, you'll see that many, if not most words in the English language have one, two, three, or four definitions for one particular word. And because English is kind of a mutt language, we have dozens of synonyms for almost every word. But you can know all of this, what's called the semantic range of a particular word, but you need at least, at least one more thing in order to know, to be confident that you're using a word correctly, and that is context. You have to know the context of your current environment, your current period in history, where you live, regionally even, and you also need to know the historical context, the etymology of a word, and how it was used in the way that the author intended it to use in his or her particular context. Now, this becomes really important because this supposedly good news that Mark is teaching us here is good news that can get you arrested and beaten and killed. It's not the kind of good news that any of us would think. So, it's certainly a different kind of good news than we're used to. Maybe one of the sort of lesser known or more disputed synonyms of the gospel but see, it's doubtful that, that anyone would go through the trouble to arrest you or beat you or kill you for c- proclaiming good news that sinners can be forgiven. That's not all that controversial. And if someone disagrees with you, they just kind of let you believe that privately. That's what they believe over in that weirdo church. Or as true as it might be, Jesus will be God's atoning sacrifice for sin. Maybe that's getting a little bit closer to the center, maybe a little bit more particularistic. But yet, holding that belief privately is not all that controversial. So still, what is it about gospel that will get you arrested, beaten, and killed? Words, news, proclamation, preaching only gets you killed if it threatens the status quo, if it threatens the current arrangements of power, and the enforcers of that current arrangement, the enforcers of the status quo have more firepower than you do, have more weapons, or in this case, have the cross to enforce the status quo. You see, as much as Martin Luther King and the other civil rights heroes may have believed that the gospel was the basis for racial equality. Had they been content to hold those beliefs privately, then the white establishment would have had little cause to bring out the fire hoses and the batons and the German shepherds. They were threatened by the gospel that the civil rights movement believed. It's not because these black clergymen believed in the human dignity of all persons, and maybe preached from time to time about that in their black churches behind closed doors. That wouldn't have gotten them beaten, arrested, and killed, at least not at that scale. It's because their good news was that 
Jesus came to do more than just rescue souls to heaven. The white establishment was fine with that because it gave black Christians something to be hopeful about, something to ameliorate their problems so they weren't agitated and activistic and challenging the structures that oppressed them. They were fine with sort of a pie-in-the-sky kind of gospel. But you see, these black clergymen and women of faith, they marched, they organized boycotts, they did protests and sit-ins, and they sat in the front of the bus. Their gospel stood the world on its head because they weren't content to sort of sequester the gospel in this private realm of spirituality. The white ruling class in Montgomery recognized that the gospel being preached at Dexter Avenue and many other black churches around the South, threatened their hold on power. It threatened the status quo. It threatened everything about the way that the economy and the social order was structured at that time. Ursula Le Guin in your bulletin that I quoted says, you cannot buy the revolution, you cannot make the revolution, and I would add, you cannot just believe the revolution. As she said, you can only be the revolution. The gospel is something that inhabits, something that we embody. It's something that we be into the world. Those hearing Mark's gospel, historical context, those hearing him are those who read from copies of his gospel. They lived in a society that was even more stratified and more economic, uh, economically unjust than ours is. They lived under the boot of Roman imperialism and this militaristic cult of Caesar that talked about him as the divine man. But they also lived under a fundamentalist Jewish religious system that was enthralled to that imperial power and in collusion with Rome. And these religious elites, what Mark calls throughout his gospel, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that's shorthand for this legalistic system that centers in Jerusalem and has a very stratified hierarchy of people that are in touch with God and are credentialed to dispense His goods and services. They were the ones that dictated theological orthodoxy. They controlled the mechanisms of the gospel, the mechanisms of redemption. And everything, everyone must come through them, must come to them in Jerusalem. Are you starting to pick up on why what Mark is saying is a little bit more controversial than just it's a new private spirituality that you're supposed to believe it quite deeply, but it doesn't necessarily filter out or threaten anyone's power in the public world. And where does this gospel come from? Mark says it comes from the wilderness, from a weirdo who wears clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Richard, do you say that was very Portland? 
I thought I heard that. That's a good line. It wouldn't be so weird here, but it was very weird to be bringing preaching and proclamation from the wilderness. Maybe not weird, but it was considered weird by the, the elite in Jerusalem. You see, this is Mark's way of saying that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would have viewed John the Baptist as a hick, as a redneck. He's leading sort of a tent revival in flyover country. This isn't where significant cultural social things happen. This is on the frontier with weirdos and hicks. And the religious elites in Jerusalem would have normally been inclined just to ignore it. There were lots of these kinds of messiahs cropping up and lots of these kind of revivals and preachers and so forth. And they would have just been content to ignore it. But what does Mark say? All the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Now, this is obviously hyperbole. The city of Jerusalem didn't evacuate into the wilderness to go hear John's preaching, but it was enough to be significant for the scribal religious class in Jerusalem to take notice and say, this isn't something insignificant. This is a threat to our power. You see, the flood was supposed to go into Jerusalem. The multitudes were supposed to come to them, not leave Jerusalem, go to hear this redneck hick preaching and wearing weird clothes. They're flowing out of Jerusalem from what is supposedly the center to the periphery, to the margins. They're preaching to overlooked people in out-of-the-way places, people that the religious elite in Jerusalem overlooked or even scorned. Now, here's where I want to bring us back a little bit to our context. How does this translate for us? The, this message that Mark begins to teach here, that we begin to see just by defining the words that he's using, as we did last week, about Messiah being a very political term to attach to Jesus. And now, it's taking the power from the center, from the religious class and the elites out to the margins, to the periphery. This message, what we would call a message of civil and social justice, which becomes through the gospel one that is meant to care for the poor and care for the oppressed and care for and guard the alien, setting prisoners free. In our day, in our context, that sort of agenda is associated with who? It's associated with progressives and social elites, coastal elites. It's associated with the platform that we would call liberalism, who have, maybe in the church context, liberals who have given up on the Bible and they just want to do social good. When you start listing those things, those regions of care, you begin to think, well, this is, I know this platform. This is what the liberal churches tend to do better than conservative churches. They care for people socially. They care for economic injustice. But in general, they often have given up on the traditional Christian reasons why, okay? But for Mark, you see, this liberal social agenda, this Occupy Jerusalem movement, if you will, it isn't coming from the privileged urban cultural 
coastal elites. It's not coming from the theological liberals, but it's coming from Joe Sixpacks in the middle of Nowheresville. It's coming from the blue-collar workers. It's coming from the lower classes, from those on the margins. But you see, Mark quotes Malachi, and he quotes Isaiah. That's the Old Testament passages that he cobbles together here to make his point. As if to say that while the message of Jesus is indeed something profoundly new, because it comes challenging all the existing structures and systems of the status quo, this is kind of the, what we would call the socially or religiously liberal part of that. At the same time, it's a recovery of He's reaching back into the Old Testament, into Malachi, into Isaiah. It's a commitment to something very, very ancient, what we would associate as being traditional or conservative. Do you see how he's transcending the labels that we often use, that we believe so highly in, that we even label ourselves in, and that we therefore limit ourselves? Jesus is being radical because he's being biblical. And this is why, as a short aside, why when people begin to start attending in town, they may come for a particular reason. They may, however, begin to attend and be a little bit maybe bemused or puzzled about what is going on here, because you're supposed to be able to come into a church or nowadays just look on a website and be able to categorize, well, this church is clearly conservative. This church is progressive liberal. They certainly believe these things, and if it's conservative, another list. We're supposed to be able to easily categorize people, institutions, churches on that conservative to liberal spectrum. But if we're doing our job at InTown, if the leaders and me are doing our job rhetorically, that shouldn't work here. That spectrum should not apply, and we should resist it. Because what in town is meant to be, and what my passion is, that I think is rooted in what Mark is talking about and the gospel that Mark is committed to, is that at in town we want to have a deep commitment to the ministry and the message of Jesus, rooted in something, and yet for that reason choose to do acts of radical mercy and justice. We want to be obligated to Scripture, and for that reason, be willing to reevaluate the interpretive systems that we have inherited, that have become institutionalized, that have become unquestionable. This is orthodoxy, and we want to be willing, because of the Bible, to say, maybe not. And that's what is so cool about this class that meets every week before church, is they do that actively, looking at a different passage of Scripture that may have become ossified over time into a certain interpretive commitment or orthodoxy that is never to be questioned. And this class, and hopefully the church at large, is saying, well, why not? If it coheres with the Bible, okay, but maybe it's just the system that we've inherited. We want to believe that the Bible teaches us that God is possessed by radical love because that's what the Bible tells us. And for that reason, 
we as a church are radically open and radically inclusive. Do you see how it transcends the spectrum that we normally? You see, normally socially liberal churches, culturally liberal churches, they're the most inclusive and welcoming, while conservative churches tend to be a little bit more closed door. The conservative churches are the ones that really believe strongly about the Bible, and yet oftentimes, at least stereotypically, they don't care very much for their city. They don't care for the stranger and the orphan and the alien, at least not tangibly. And we want to not be content to exist in either of those buckets. A church, a life rooted in the gospel of Jesus is animated by something that is both radically new and profoundly ancient and rooted. The gospel says on one hand, everything must change, not just your spiritual life, but the economic system that you inhabit, the political system that you participate in, the school board your work, your neighborhood, all of it is called into question by the gospel. And the gospel has resources to begin to propel us into the places of need and places of hurt with God's healing grace. And yet, while it's subversive, radically democratic, liberalizing to the religious and political world, it is also profoundly old. It is deeply creedal. Mark contends, you see, by referring to Isaiah and Malachi that Jesus is coming in the messianic, in the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies and passages of the Old Testament. He's not simply new. He's not something that was invented, but He is the incarnation of God's eternal love for His created world. That has always existed. And Jesus comes calling for a revolution by calling Israel to the ancient texts that they have forgotten or maybe have misread in their collusion with Roman law and order. He's questioning the systems of orthodoxy and the approved, the self-appointed interpreters You see, with the Bible, you are oppressing people because you're not understanding the ancient love of God in your own Scriptures. Like the prophets Malachi, Isaiah, and all of the others who rose up in the days of exile after the Israelite monarchy fell, John the Baptist comes. He's uncredentialed, he's an illegitimate outsider, he's a bit of a weirdo, he's a hick, and he was the one that prepared the way for Jesus to minister, not with a scepter and not with a sword and not in halls of power, but in the fields, in the byways and the highways and the dirty streets, among religious outcast and the uncredentialed and the people of ill repute. You see, because of the Bible, because he understood the Hebrew Bible, he went to those people. He lived with those people. He cared for the social and social outcast and the outcast from justice. 
But you see, back to our context, Mark's readers probably would have had an easier time hearing this, noticing what Mark is doing, not necessarily believing it, but at least noticing that this gospel was highly public, highly politicized, and maybe we're primed to take hold of it. Because why? Mark's readers mostly were poor, were agrarian, they were exiled Hebrews who were chafing under the oppressive weight of Roman colonialism. You see, they longed for their world to be turned upside down. That was good news to them. Most of us in the American church are far more content to read a passage or hear it, highlight a few spiritual lessons that we can take from it, and go about our comfortable lives in the most dominant, most powerful, most wealthy nation on the face of the earth. Because, you see, to listen with the ears of these peasants would call too much of our lives into question. And so, do you see how we come with these filters that make the gospel kind of fit within categories that are allowable to the systems that we inhabit? And we don't let it take its radical and yet deeply rooted effect in our lives. These hearers, they weren't looking for a leader to give them new spiritual technique, but they were looking for the Messiah to come and to make water run uphill. They were begging for someone to come and turn the world upside down. Now, that standing the world on its head didn't quite take the shape that many people thought it would, even Jesus' disciples, which we'll see throughout this study. But the point being that many of us in the West, we're content generally with a Savior with a little bit more modest scope. But what Mark is doing here in this gospel and in this passage is he's granting us, you see, privileged perspective on the events that had already transpired in his reader's day. He's narrating these events that with a perspective that the characters themselves didn't yet have. And that is how the world was originally meant to be and how it will one day be. And He is saying to us now with that privileged perspective, are you ready? Are you ready for that kind of gospel? Are you ready for the world to be stood on its head? Are you ready for your world to be stood on its head? Because you see, it's easy to kind of hurrah Mark's writing here and say, right on, the world needs a good rousting. Have you seen what's going on out there? That's easy. But this morning, right now, we have to recognize first that it's, it's our world that the gospel comes to stand on its head. Our world ways of being in the world that privilege our personal comfort over almost anything else, our use of force, our use of money, our use of manipulation to get what we want, our participation in regimes of power, 
and structures of inequity with little thought of how it benefits us and how it excludes or oppresses someone else. You see, Mark announces something new. It's not private, but it is very personal. Jesus comes to recapitulate nothing less than the history of the world. He comes to launch a new creation that Mark roots in the very first sentence of Genesis 1, a new beginning, arche. But this new beginning, you see, isn't just structural. It isn't only out there, but it's in here as well because Jesus comes to recapitulate our world, our history, our lives, and to say what has marked you in the past, your sordid history, the bad mistakes you have been made, that you have made, these can all be undone because what is ancient is grace. What is most ancient about God is His radical love and His radical forgiveness. You see, this gospel comes in a new form, and it comes from the margins. It doesn't arise from the known power structures, but from out in the wilderness, out on the periphery. But out there in the periphery, you won't find the coercive force that we're so used to that is exploited on us and that we exploit to move and to dictate to others. But what we will find on the margins, this radically new thing, it is speaking of the oldest love that the world has ever known being renewed. You see, this gospel is not private. It's very public, but it's also very personal, and it includes you in the most ancient world, most ancient love that the world has ever known. Let's take hold of that. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we would be people here at InTown who are animated by the gospel, who are animated by your ancient love for your people. And I pray that we would walk out of here believing that for us personally, but that we would also take hold of something so much larger that our church would grasp the calling as more than just conversion of individual souls, more than just a promise of future delight, but it is a calling to bring your care and your love tangibly into the world that we live in and that we have to do business with the way that we spend our money, the decisions that we make, where we live and who we live amongst. And I pray also for those that are here perhaps looking in from the outside and wondering if you have anything to say to their lives, anything true, and I pray that they would hear what is true is that you are ancient in your love, that your love is irrepressible, and that we can take hold of it. And Father, I pray that we would all do that as we come to this table, as we confess our faith together. In Jesus' name, amen.